I was interested in how kids coped with failures. And I saw that, as I expected, for some kids, it was, you know, a tragedy. It meant they were not smart. It was the worst thing that could have happened to them, and they sort of fell apart. And then there were the other kids. Whereas other kids not only coped with the failure, some of them loved it. They relished it. They said things like, I love a challenge. In the 1970s, soon after graduating from Yale University with a Ph.D. in psychology, Carol Dweck set out to learn what makes some children crumble when facing tough challenges, while others get a surge in motivation. Wow, I understood that you could cope or not cope, but love failure, relish failure? I was so far from that place at that time. But then and there I thought, these are my role models. I'm going to unlock their secrets and maybe bottle it, give it to everybody I can, including myself. During four decades of working with children, Carol Dweck has unlocked many secrets of what she calls the growth mindset, which has made her one of the most influential voices in parenting and education today. Dweck, uh, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have to tell you, I, I think about you and your work a lot, and I've, I've called you for a number of stories over the years. I was thinking about you just the other day because uh, one of my daughters plays hardball, the only girl in her Little League division, and I listened to her coaches right after their practice, and they said something right out of the Carol Dweck handbook. They said, we really appreciate how hard you work today. And then they followed it up by saying, now listen, each of you has something to work on and improve on for the next practice. And they went around and asked each kid what that would be. What do you think about that, and how does that fit into your work? I think that is exactly my work. That's exactly what I hope my work would result in. And it's a beautiful, beautiful application of it. It represents appreciation for the process kids engaged in, their hard work, their strategies, their focus, their uh, teamwork, and it points out what needs to be improved because there's always something. It makes that a natural process, not that there's something wrong with you or you're not good enough. This is the way things work. You always have something to improve. Uh, So often I am finding that even people who are not familiar with your work as a, a direct source, you can trace it back to your studies and your book mindset. But let me just tell you one other thing I got from that practice, and I think this is the ideal metaphor for your work and what I've gotten out of it, because these same coaches who, by the way, have been on a crazy winning streak, they've won a lot of championships, but they're not these obsessed, we've got to win at all costs kind of coaches. They've got the right balance. But here's something else they were teaching the kids in batting practice. They said, when you've got two strikes against you, we will not accept you striking out without swinging. We don't want you striking out looking. So when you have two strikes against you, you've got to change your mentality. And unless that ball is basically a wild pitch, you've got to try to make contact with it. Because even if you just 
foul off a few balls. It'll tire the pitcher that much more. Nobody wants to strike out looking. Is there a better metaphor for your work than preventing people from striking out looking? Yes. Uh, You want to know that you went for it, that you put everything you had into it rather than hoping someone else would mess up. Now, let me ask you, you're here because you have done very rigorous studies. And, you know, I'm a parent of three children. One of the greatest joys we all get, whether we're parents or not, is for our children or we ourselves to recognize patterns. Mm -hmm. You, early in your career, recognized a pattern that you seized on and developed to all our benefit. So please go back for us and describe the first time you recognized the pattern that you ultimately identified as growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Give us the primer. It was at the very beginning of my career. I was interested in how kids coped with failures. And I saw that, as I expected, for some kids, it was, you know, a tragedy. It meant they were not smart. It was the worst thing that could have happened to them, and they sort of fell apart. By the way, how did you see that? Oh, well, I gave them uh, problems to solve. They did pretty well. Then I gave them some hard ones, and I looked at what happened after that, The kids who didn't cope well with failure really showed impaired performance, not just on the hard problems, but everything that followed. Whereas other kids not only coped with the failure, some of them loved it. They relished it. They said things like, I love a challenge, or, you know, I was hoping this would be informative. Well, that's when my eyes really opened and my jaw dropped. By the way, these I'm in my jaw drops when I hear that story because these kids were how old? Ten years old. So so that that's quite something to articulate for a ten year old. And I yes, and I, I've actually seen it in kids quite a bit younger. So I thought Wow, I understood that you could cope or not cope, but love failure, relish failure. I was so far from that place at that time. But then and there I thought, these are my role models. I'm going to unlock their secrets and maybe bottle it, give it to everybody I can, including myself. Uh, So over the years, I came to recognize that it was the growth and the fixed mindsets that were creating these different patterns. The kids who were falling apart were thinking, my intelligence is just fixed, I have a certain amount, and it's no good. This failure told me it's no good. But the kids who were loving the challenge were thinking, my abilities, these are things I can develop. I don't want to waste time just doing easy things and looking good. I want to get smarter. And these hard problems, these challenges are the way I can get smarter. Now, let me stop you right there, because roughly speaking, what year was this? Uh, Oh, when I discovered the mindsets. Yes. And I should say we, because I'm always working with my incredible graduate students and postdocs. Oh, so that was in the, actually in the 1980s. So let me ask you, because as I've begun interviewing more and more people in the, in the emerging and fast growing field of neuroplasticity, 
in the 1980s, were those still the days when they were teaching in medical school that you had a fixed amount of neurons in your brain, and at a certain age, you could not increase the connections between those neurons? Absolutely. It was um, an age, I was coming out of an age where there was a fixed theory of everything. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. So I was coming out of a time that believed in fixed intelligence, measured by the IQ test. But it was also the best of times when I was in graduate school. We were coming out of the darker ages of behaviorism and really starting to explore people's thoughts, their feelings, the complexity of, um, of living adaptively or maladaptively. So the world was open to us. Suddenly we were um, kids in the psychological candy store. And um, I very early became, very early on, became interested in how people seize the opportunities in their lives and develop their Potential. By the way, what triggered that interest? Was there some moment in your life or you just fell into it? When I was in graduate school, I started um, research with learning in animals. And at the time, there was a fascinating line of research with animals on what was called learned helplessness, where animals who had experienced negative events like shocks that they couldn't control eventually stopped trying to do anything. They lost their initiative entirely. And I wondered, was there a human analog? Could I identify that in the ways that kids coped with failure, with some of them kind of going helpless when they had setbacks, but others keeping that initiative and moving forward. There were ideas around it at that time that really fed into my interests. One thing that's striking me, and I've, I've listened to and read a lot of your work, and I've never heard you say this growth mindset idea was as far from your personal experience what kind of person were you at the time? And this whole idea of you wanting to learn from these children is fascinating to me because I learned from my children. And, and tell me about that. Where, were you, where was your head at that moment where you were able to say, I can learn from these kids? Well, you know, we're all a mixture of fixed and growth mindset. But I was coming out of a very fixed mindset background uh, where intelligence was believed to be fixed, and it was believed to be the most important thing on earth. My teacher in sixth grade seated us around the room in IQ order. Everything was determined on the basis of IQ. Okay, so tell us, where, where were you sitting? For better or worse, sitting in the first seat in the first row. And I say for better or worse, because although it seems like a good thing, it really set me up for worrying about always being smart. It made that a central part of my identity. And therefore, even though I loved learning, I always made sure I could succeed before I jumped into something. So when I saw these kids later on in my research saying, 
I'm just going to jump in and have faith because that's what's exciting. That's what's going to make me smarter. I thought, wow, I was once like that. But this societal belief or Mrs. Wilson, my teacher's belief in fixed intelligence, distanced me from that wholehearted embracing of challenges, of things that really pushed you to the limit, took you to the limit. Dr. Carol Dweck's journey away from the mindset that put her in row one, seat one, after this brief break on Wavemaker Conversations. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. (coughs) Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Want great deals on products and unique experiences in your neighborhood? Look no further than CVS Local Offers, which brings you the best local deals in your community with everything from enticing restaurants to exciting events. Go to offers.cvslocal.com today. You're listening to the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. My guest is Dr. Carol Dweck, psychology professor at Stanford University. Her work has had a major impact on our understanding of what motivates children and adults to take on great challenges and to persist in the face of failure. So tell me what have you discovered about how to encourage this growth mindset and Is it ever too late to get it? Well, let me start with the conclusion. It's never too late. We and others have worked with people of all ages from preschool through the elderly. It's never too late. I do want to get beyond children, but starting with the core, uh, I had called you a few years back for a Father's Day story, and, and the premise was, I want to instill more curiosity in my children about things that they're currently not curious about. And you told me, that was the first time you explained to me what the growth mindset is. I said, how practically can I do this? Obviously, I don't have total control of it, but how can I encourage it? And you said, I quote, even sitting around the dinner table and asking the following question, who had a great struggle today? Or what are you going to struggle with tomorrow? Now, I never followed up with you. I have to tell you, I tried it that night and I sat down with the kids and my wife at dinner. I said, who had a great struggle today? And my kids immediately said, who have you been interviewing today, dad? (laughs) Because they knew that wasn't language that was normally coming from me. So I just had to figure out, okay, I need a little transition language. So help us out here. What are some of the things we can say to the people around us who we still have some influence over that can help develop this growth mindset? A growth mindset is the belief that abilities can be developed. And, And a fixed mindset is the belief that everything's fixed. You have what you have. You are what you are. And um, just to give a little background, our research shows that when you praise kids for their ability or intelligence, it backfires. It puts them into a fixed mindset, and it makes them only want to look smart. And what you do 
when you start fostering a growth mindset is you're advocating a whole new value system. It, it's very different. So instead of um, going wild when they do something easy successfully, no, easy, that's boring. That's a waste of time. And that your praise, encouragement, appreciation should be reserved for when they tackle something difficult, stick to it and make progress. So the struggle example, um, yes, it, it probably needed a, a little bit more of an inter, uh, of a transition to say, I heard something interesting today. Uh, it turns out that people who achieve a lot really struggle. And that I always thought maybe struggle was kind of a, a bad thing. It meant you weren't good at what you were doing. But now I'm realizing it's a good thing. Let's each think about what are we struggling with? Let's share that. And or let's think about what we want to struggle with. And you know, when I do that with my freshmen at Stanford, they are relieved to hear um, in, in my seminar that other people are struggling. Stanford is probably one of, if not the hardest university to get into. And and many of the kids who are getting into Stanford have absolutely stellar records. And what is your sense? Have they just simply not been put in position to fail and therefore have gotten into Stanford and then have a rude awakening the first time they find a challenge? Or are your students kids who really have overcome a lot of failures or is it a mixture? It's a mixture, but I can tell you this. They are virtually all terrified when they arrive here. They're thrilled, they're excited, and they're terrified because they think, okay, now I have to prove I'm the smartest person in the world. And I have to tell them, no, you're not here because you're the smartest person in the world. You're here because you're interesting. You've done interesting things, and Stanford believes you can do interesting things, make important contributions in the future. But I can tell you now, it's going to be hard here. And so we're going to talk every few weeks. We're all going to say, what are we struggling with? And it's just an amazing experience for them to hear that every single person is struggling with something, whether it's social, academic, athletic, they are all struggling with something. So it's amazing just that. I mean, that's something that right now, if you're an educator, if you're a parent, even in a marriage, just to articulate that in a very open way, I am struggling with something sounds like it opens the door to a wave of stories. Yes, and it doesn't mean you're not good at that or there's something wrong with you or your relationship isn't good through, because you're going through a period of struggling. It means that it's a period of growth, potential growth, and that you've got to really seize that. What I've seen in my experience is, you know, kids, even, even if they see sometimes that struggle leads to good outcomes and they see patterns emerge like, oh boy, every time I struggle with something, it leads to a good outcome. It's hard to get it in your muscle memory. It is because, you know, in a fixed mindset, one of the major beliefs 
is that if you're really smart, you shouldn't have to work hard. And if you have to work hard, it means you're not that smart. Research has shown when you give anything difficult to people in a fixed mindset, even if you give them a reading passage where the font is a little blurry and hard to read, they start losing confidence. Because, again, there's this very powerful, almost visceral feeling in a fixed mindset that if you're smart, it shouldn't be hard. So that idea of struggle, especially for kids who have done well all along, the struggling students are people very, very different from them. And then one day they have to struggle, and many of them stop achieving at that point. I interviewed the uh, the college coach with the longest winning streak in the history of college sports. His name is Coach Paul Asiante of Trinity College, very fine college. I think his team won 252 team matches in a row, uh, 13 or 14 national championships. And I asked him if he's seen a difference in the students who are coming into his school over the years. And he said, yes, it does seem like I see more kids who don't have the experience failing. And at the first failure, he said, they break like a porcelain doll. Yes. So tell me about that. That resonates with you. Tell me what you've experienced at Stanford. Parents often feel that they need to protect. They, the parents treat them like porcelain dolls and often feel they need to protect them from setbacks or negative experiences, that somehow they'll be damaged by that. Or they worry, the parents may worry that if there's a setback, My child won't get into this school or that school. So there's kind of a curating of the child's experiences according to the parent's theory that that's what's going to be good for the child. There's also this, uh, often this helicopter parenting. So the child has never actually survived on his or her own. So college, they're away for the first time, they're coping on their own for the first time, and nobody's there saving them from a setback. Because I've heard the word helicopter parenting, I, I actually have never heard the phrase curating the child's experiences. And and so I have two reactions to that. Number one, well, that can be a good thing because, hey, we parents know a lot and at least we want to expose our children to certain things. But what is the negative aspect of curating the child's experiences? Well, if you're only exposing them to successes, if you're curtailing every negative emotion, rushing in there and solving their problems, running to school and arguing with the teachers who gave the child critical feedback that the child could potentially learn from, That child is getting the message. Failure is a disgrace. And not only should I feel unworthy if I fail, you won't be proud of me anymore, mom and dad. So that's the downside. The child doesn't learn how to cope on his or her own and learns this implicit lesson that failures are devastating. Parents only see a certain number of kids. Uh, Teachers see more kids, 
but in less depth. But nevertheless, they see a broader body of kids. You have been studying children for more than four decades. How many kids would you say you have sort of looked at carefully in your career? We have had in our studies tens and even hundreds of thousands of kids. But we don't do or we have not typically done in-depth, very in-depth studies of individuals. We really try to isolate important beliefs or emotions that kids have, and then we test our hypotheses in large samples of children where we measure their mindset and predict their performance, or we teach them a new mindset and see what happens. Take me behind the scenes to to one of the experiments or studies that you've done that has excited you most recently that tells you, yes, we can teach a child a new growth mindset where that person did not have it in abundance before. Tell me exactly what you witnessed and why it's so encouraging to you. Whoa, we have so many of those studies now. We, um, uh, we've done them with high school students and co- college students where now we have mindset programs that we've developed for research purposes, one or two session mindset programs that students do over the computer. They, they do it on the computers in their school. And these programs teach them about how their brain has all these neurons. The neurons form new, stronger connections when they do something hard and stick to it. And that's how they can get smarter. We also teach them that by getting smarter, they can really reach their goals in life. And uh, we illustrate how to apply these ideas to their schoolwork. Sometimes the more you know, well, sometimes knowledge becomes actionable intelligence. And sometimes it just, you look at it, it's interesting, and it passes you by. So is there evidence that by showing children and adults evidence of what happens in their brain, because now we can scan the brain, right? Are you actually showing kids, look at your brain in the middle of a growth mindset experience versus a fixed mindset experience? Can you actually demonstrate that for them? Actually, we do show them that um, because uh, researchers have looked at the brain through EEG as students are making errors on a task. And what they found was that when students were in a fixed mindset, when they hit an error, they disengage from it as quickly as possible and move on. Um, Whereas when they're in a growth mindset, they process the error deeply, they learn from it, they correct it, and then move on having learned something. So we actually do in our programs now show students a picture of the growth mindset brain that's on fire when they're processing these errors. And we're showing those are the times that the connections become stronger and you get smarter. I 
have to interrupt the podcast here because if you want to see the image of the brain Carol Dweck just referred to, the image of the brain getting stronger as it works through mistakes, you can find that image on my Twitter feed at Michael Shoulder. That's at Michael Shoulder. Okay, back to the podcast. And how old do you have to be to look at those pictures and say, okay, bye-bye fear of failure. I'm taking on the challenge. We don't know. We've worked with kids as young as, well, we've, we've done research on kids in preschool. We've taught you can grow your brain idea to kids from sixth grade on. But there's a um, school on an Indian reservation in the state of Washington near Seattle where they taught the whole grade school you can grow your brain. You can, when you do all these hard things, you grow your brain. And by doing this, you can help your family and your community in the future. Well, that school had always been at the bottom of their district. And within a year where the teachers immersed kids in this growth mindset idea of growing your brain. And the parents were taught that too, so they could reinforce it at home. The kindergartners and first graders went to the top of the district in reading readiness and comprehension. These kids were always at the bottom. Everyone thought, oh, you know, they have this background and this history, and uh, maybe there isn't a value on education. But this idea was so exciting to them, and they so understood that this was a way into a future that they wanted, where they could help their community. Um, They just uh, caught fire. So we don't know how young. If the kindergartners and first graders were thrilled at the opportunity to grow their brains, it, uh, who knows? And we know by just anecdotally that uh, from parents that their toddlers are saying, good effort, mommy, good effort, daddy, or, oh, you know, uh, this, is this going to grow my brain? Of course, you have to make sure they don't think the brain is going to come out their ears. Well, you know, I was going to ask you that about about when, when you use the word grow your brain, are we talking about the number of connections between neurons? Yeah, we're not talking about the size and we're very clear with kids. It's, it's not going to, your head is not going to get gigantic. It's not going to start oozing out through your nostrils. We really say make your brain stronger. This is applicable to way, way more than raising children. I interviewed a guy who wrote a book and you might have come across it called The Sports Gene. Have you come across that book? Mm-hmm. The Sports Gene by David Epstein is a wonderful synthesis of the science, and, and he was he was on his college track team, and he wondered, you know, some of these guys are coming on the field, like, overnight, and their sensations, why do I have to struggle so much? And he wants to know how much of athletic achievement is genetic. But what he did that was so, you know, so, so news-breaking was that what we came to know as the 10,000-hour rule through Malcolm Gladwell's work, which is, you know, you can, you can master a, a subject or a skill in if you practice it religiously for 10,000 hours. He said, no, that that's wrong. It can be anywhere from a few thousand hours to 15 or 20,000 hours, depending on your natural abilities. But still, while you may never get to the top, you can make a lot of progress 
with practice. So in your experience, I mean, how do you explain and how do you notice what's natural talent and what's effort? Because there are differences in natural talent. Oh, yeah. Uh, People are different and things can come much more easily to some people than others. It's very hard to identify natural talent in the sense that even when you see child prodigies, Um, One of the most striking things about them is their obsession, their passion for numbers, words, music, whatever. And you don't know whether they come with this natural ability or they come with this fascination and obsession for something or both. Nonetheless, you see some kids, uh, you know, walking onto a soccer field and they're pretty good pretty quickly and others really have to struggle. But you never know who has the potential to be great if they apply themselves over time. So it may not be the prodigy that really becomes the great success or makes the great contribution. It may be the person who didn't look so great to begin with, but then really applied him or herself, found new ways to do things, and really made breakthroughs. So I just want to really bring home the point. We don't know how to predict who is going to be great. Well, and that's an extremely important point. And actually, it was echoed by David Epstein in his work, where where as much as we know about the genes, we know so little. And I said, in the end, what is your advice for parents and coaches? And his advice was, given what we know and what we don't know, don't specialize too early. Another really important point is genes always operate in concert with the environment. There's no such thing as a gene just making you who you are. It's always interacting with the environment. So you could almost, uh, you can not just, especially for a complex behavior, um, take, take a gene and make a prediction. Just recently on this, on Wavemaker Conversations, we interviewed Dr. Norman Doidge, who's written a a couple of of excellent books on this from the frontiers of neuroplasticity. And the way he explained it to me is there's an upside and a downside. The downside to knowing that our brain is plastic and can change is that if you get into a rut, if you get into a lot of bad habits, those habits can become reinforced and it can become harder to get out of that rut. But on the positive side, of course, if you change your habits and and your mindset, you know, you can really make a lot of progress. Again, I guess coming back to kids, but really even more young adults. And as I look at my kids getting older and at some point heading off to college, you know, this whole idea of the growth mindset suggests that, well, you don't have to have it all together by the time you get to college. And I know the last time we spoke, you said you were doing some studies with young women in college whose mindset basically had told them, well, you know, girls just aren't quite as good in math as boys. And you've set out to change that. Is that correct? Almost. <laughs> it's okay, not, well. yeah, it's not so much that these uh, females in college are thinking, I'm not good at this or I'm not good at that. They actually come in thinking they're really interested in math and science, computer science. Um, and then they start taking the courses and the messages from their environment say, you know, 
You have to be a genius to be um, uh, successful here, or you need to have fixed ability, or you know there are people who have it and people who don't, and uh, the females start feeling, oh, do they think? We're the ones who don't have it. So some really fascinating studies are showing that the more a field puts out that message, and these are not our studies, they're um, done by other researchers, the more the field puts out a message that it's a fixed ability that some people have and some people don't, the fewer women are in that field and the fewer minority students are in that field. If they hear a growth mindset message, this is a set of skills. Uh, you can develop your abilities through hard work. Even if they're hit with negative stereotypes, that growth mindset allows them to withstand the negative stereotypes. Yeah, let me take it to one final area then, which is for all of us, our relationships, our marriages, our significant others. Uh, you maintain that this growth mindset can really improve relationships if you give it a chance. Tell me how that works. In a fixed mindset, I have my fixed traits, my partner has his fixed traits, and when something goes wrong, I think, well, either I'm no good, he's no good, the relationship's no good, and, uh, you know, and those are my options, which are pretty destructive. So you have to blame someone or something or um, you become increasingly dissatisfied. But in a growth mindset, I'm, I'm a growing person. I have flaws. He's a growing person. He has flaws. A relationship can always grow and develop. So if something's difficult... You work on it. You try to learn from it. Your partner tries to learn from it. And research shows that the relationship can come out of that even stronger. You know, I just emailed my wife before this because I was so, you know, immersed in, in your work and in the mindset. And I knew I was coming into this interview. I said, you know, we, we should look for ways to improve on this particular matter. And each of us should look for our own ways. And, and she emailed me back quickly. She said, I will definitely look for ways for you to improve. <laughs> well, in my book, I talk about how my husband and I invented a third party named Maurice um, that we blamed everything on. And so then we didn't have to work with each other about, is it my fault or your fault? And we can take, could take the issue constructively from there once all the blame was heaped upon Maurice. That's, that's a great idea. And, and you know what? That's, that reinforces what my wife just did was you have a sense of humor about it. And humor is a whole other subject, but, but clearly essential because you also have to have a sense of humor about failing too if you're going to uh, be willing to fail, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is the, the hardest work you are currently doing that has a sense of urgency and you don't know if you're going to succeed or fail at it, but boy, are you working hard? Oh, many things. And research is always something that, well, it doesn't, it, it could, it's something that could always fail. We're working, um, my team is working really, really hard now on a national study of mindsets, a nationally representative sample of high school students, and um, looking at 
how growth mindsets affect their ambitions, their achievements, um, their the likelihood of their staying in school. And this is a monumentally large, difficult, challenging, and thrilling study for us. How many kids are involved in this? Thousands and thousands and thousands. What are the core questions that are designed to elicit whatever insights you'll eventually get? You know, we've done many studies where we've taught growth mindset and seen overall effects, but we're really interested in not only who it works best for, but who doesn't it work best for and why and how can we, what do they need and how can we change it to be matched better with uh, for students from different cultural backgrounds, for students with different academic experiences, students of different ages. So we're really challenging ourselves by saying, where isn't our current intervention working and how can we make it better? Well, you know what? That brings us full circle to what the coach told my daughter on their baseball team. What isn't working and what can you improve on for the next game. Carol Dweck, I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, professor of psychology at Stanford University, author of Mindset. Carol Dweck, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. Pleasure. If you want to learn more about Carol Dweck's work, you can read her book, Mindset. You can also check out her website designed to develop growth mindsets. It's called Brainology. And the people who run the TED Talks have been kind enough to allow me to post Dr. Dweck's wildly popular 10-minute TED Talk from last year on my website. That's on wavemaker.me. 1.9 million people have already viewed that talk, which focuses on the power of the word yet, Y-E-T, yet, as in you haven't failed, you just haven't succeeded yet. It is a very powerful word, a very powerful presentation. And again, that's a TED Talk, and you can find it on wavemaker.me. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.